Blog Talk Radio.
and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Today is Saturday, uh, April the 30th, 2022. And later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing military conflict in Ukraine, where fighting has intensified over the last week. South Africa has reported a new increase in COVID-19 cases across the country. Also, in other news, Kenya held a state funeral for former President Mwai Kabaki earlier today in Nairobi. We'll have details on that as well. And the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has visited several African states uh, in the Western region. Uh, This was after uh, his trip to uh, both uh, Russia and Ukraine. In the second hour, we look closer at the United Nations Secretary General's trip to Russia and Ukraine uh, earlier in the week. Finally, we review uh, in depth some of the most pressing and burning issues across the globe. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude, and we'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week.
welcome back. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And that was a compilation of uh, music uh, from uh, various uh, African artists, including the orchestra Makasi uh, with uh, Mos Fanfan, as well as Rene Ongala. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current conflict taking place uh, in Ukraine involving Russia's special military operation in Ukraine. Aircraft of the Russian Aerospace Forces struck five Ukrainian ammunition depots, eliminating over 200 nationalists. Uh, Russian Defense Ministry spokesman Major General Igor Konashevkov uh, said this earlier today. Over the day, uh, operational tactical aircraft of the Russian Aerospace Forces struck two command posts, nine company-level strongholds, and areas of amassed manpower and military equipment, as well as five ammunition and fuel depots. The spokesman said more than 200 nationalists and 23 pieces of armored vehicles have been eliminated. Kunashevkov said that the missile and uh, artillery troops uh, struck 319 areas of the amassment of enemy manpower and military equipment, 12 command posts, and two missile artillery arms and ammunition depots. Nearly 2,700 Ukrainian tanks and other armored vehicles, as well as 2,503 special military motor vehicles, have been eliminated uh, since the start of Russia's special military operation in Ukraine, Russian Defense Ministry spokesman said. Overall, the following targets have been eliminated since the start of the special military operation. 2,678 tanks and other combat armored vehicles and 2,503 special military motor vehicles, the spokesman said. Konishenkov added that 143 aircraft, 112 helicopters, 660 unmanned aerial vehicles, 279 surface-to-air missile systems, 309 multiple launch rocket systems, 1,196 field artillery guns and mortars have been taken out. Russian air defense forces have shot down Ukraine's Su-25 attack aircraft in the Kherson region, as well as 12 rockets of the Smirsh multiple launch rocket system in the Donetsk People's Republic, Konashenkov said. Russian uh, air defense systems shot down a Su-25 belonging to the Ukrainian Air Force near Shavoni Yar in the Kherson region, the spokesman said. According to uh, Konashenkov, two Ukrainian unmanned aerial vehicles were destroyed over Vladimirovka, and 12 rockets of the Smirsh multiple launch rocket systems were intercepted near Kamenka in the Donetsk People's Republic. Russian air-launched precision missiles uh, struck 17 Ukrainian military sites, including five emplacements of military and multiple rocket-launched systems, uh, the Major General said. Air-launched precision missiles uh, delivered strikes on 17 Ukrainian military targets during the day, uh, Konez Shankov said. In particular, eight areas of the amassment of Ukrainian manpower and military equipment five emplacements of artillery and multiple launch rocket systems, as well as two strongholds, uh, were hit. 
Also, a command post and a storage facility with rocket and artillery weapons were destroyed near Pokrovskoye and the Nepostroskov regions, he added. And um, in other news uh, taking place uh, within uh, the theater of conflict uh, between uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, Russia's finance ministry has all the resources to fulfill its obligations. Any default is out of the question. As according to the head of the Bank of Russia, Elvira Nabulina, uh, said this after a meeting of the board of directors of the regulator on yesterday. Uh, concerning the finance ministry's obligations on debts, I would like to reiterate that the ministry has the resources and economically there can be no question of any default, she said. However, Nabulina uh, admitted that there are difficulties with payments. I hope that all this will end up successfully, she added. Earlier, the International Monetary Fund European Department Director Alfred Kamer said that the low level of Russian sovereign debt and market conditions reduced the risk for the Russian government in case of a possible technical default. According to the data of the Russian Finance Ministry, as of February the 1st, 2022, Russia's external public debt amounted to $59.5 billion, including debt on external bond loans of 38 Point ninety-seven billion In total, the Russian Federation has a 15 active bond loans with maturity periods from 2022 uh, to 2047. In South Africa, uh, the country has likely entered a new wave of COVID-19 earlier than expected as new infections and hospitalizations have risen rapidly over the past two weeks, the country's health minister said on yesterday. The increase in new cases has been dominated by the BA4 and BA5 lineages of the Omicron variant, which dominated the country's earliest waves of the virus. Whichever way you look at it, uh, it does suggest that we may actually be entering the fifth wave much earlier. Health Minister Joe Fala said uh, on Friday at a televised press briefing. He said officials uh, will be watching carefully over the next few days to determine if the increase is sustained, which would confirm a new wave. The country's new infections are now several thousand per day, up from a few hundred a few weeks ago. According to Bala, uh, there was currently no information indicating the emergence of a new strain, uh, which scientists had earlier suggested may drive the country's fifth wave, expected during the country's upcoming winter season from May into June. We have always been informed uh, that when a new wave comes, it will be driven by a new variant. But at this stage, we have not been alerted to a definite new variant except changes in Omicron, said Paala. Three South African provinces, Hauteng, KwaZulu-Natal, and Western Cape, currently are accounting for 85% of new infections, with the positivity rate in Hauteng of KwaZulu-Natal above 20%, he said. Hospitalizations from the new cases are increasing, but are still relatively low, Dr. Wasile Jassat from the National Institute of Communicable Diseases said. We are starting to see a small rise in hospital admissions in the private and public sector, said Jassat. Since around 17th of April, we are seeing a sharp increase in hospital admissions. South Africa has experienced uh, the highest number of infections on the African continent, since the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, accounting for more than a quarter of the continent's 11.4 million cases. 
More than uh, 252,000 people in South Africa have died from the virus, but the numbers are considered to be much higher when considering the numbers of excess deaths recorded since the pandemic compared to the same period before the pandemic. Just over 44% of South Africa's adult population has been vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In Kenya, the country paid their last respects to former President Mwai Kabaki in a state funeral service on yesterday that was attended by African leaders. Kabaki, whose death was announced uh, last Friday, has been praised by Kenya's current leaders as a respected state statesman. Uh, he was 90 years old. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, in his tribute Friday, called Kabaki one of the greatest African statements of his generation and called him as a man of few words, but a man of decisive action. Authorities declared Friday a public holiday in honor of Kibaki, who served two terms as president from 2002 to 2013. The president of Kenya, South Africa, and South Sudan are among the dignitaries that attended the state funeral in the capital of Nairobi. Hundreds of Kenyans uh, had stood by the roadside to watch a military procession escorting the hearse to the National Stadium where thousands more had gathered since early morning. It is the second time I've seen something like this. It is sad but very colorful, said Mercy Warimu, a street vendor of of sweets. The body will be buried on Saturday at his ancestral home in central Kenya. Before becoming president in 2002, Kabaki had a distinguished career as a public servant. He had served as finance minister, vice president, and official leader of the opposition in the National Assembly. He was often seen as a gentleman in a country full of more aggressive politicians. Kibaki re-election to a second term in 2007, when a dent in his reputation as his victory was disputed uh, by his opponents, Riley Odinga. Odinga asserted that the election results had been rigged and that he had really won the polls. Hundreds of people killed uh, in the weeks of ethnic violence that followed the elections of 2007. Amid these stalemates, uh, Kenya exploded into fighting along tribal lines that forced more than 600,000 people from their homes. The violence shattered Kenya's standing as a beacon of stability in the East Africa region. The international community, led by former United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan, eventually brokered a fragile power-sharing deal between Kabaki and Odinga who settled for a new role as Kenya's prime minister. In the wake of the violence, Kibaki oversaw a new constitution for Kenya that was aimed at decentralizing power and reducing persistent ethnic tensions that continued to flare up during electoral seasons. The new constitution was praised as having some of the most progressive visions in the country. And uh, finally, the United Nations uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres is heading uh, to West Africa on on uh, today uh, to join Muslims uh, marking the end of the holy month of Ramadan and to highlight the impact of the Ukraine war on the African continent the United Nations announced yesterday. United Nations Deputy Spokesman Farhan Hart said the Secretary General will arrive in Senegal on Saturday evening to travel uh, to Niger on Monday and to Nigeria on Tuesday and then return to New York. United Nations chief will share at Iftar dinner the meal breaking of the Ramadan fast 
with President Matthew Saul of Senegal, who assumed the presidency of the African Union earlier this year, Hock said, the terrorists will also take part in the celebrations of the Id al-Fatah holiday, marking the end of Ramadan with Niger's President Mohamed Bamzoum, Hock said, and he is also scheduled to meet Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari. In the three countries, the Secretary General also will meet civil society representatives, religious leaders, and families affected by violence and instability in Africa's Sahel region, including people internally displaced and refugees, the United Nations spokesman said. Guterres will also see firsthand the impact of climate change on vulnerable communities and will assess progress and challenges to the recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, Cox said. The Secretary General issued a report this month saying Russia's war on Ukraine to devastate the economies of many developing countries in Africa and elsewhere that are now facing even higher food and energy costs and increasingly difficult financial conditions. The terrorist began annual Ramadan solidarity visits in his previous job as the United Nations refugee chief, but the position was interrupted uh, by uh, the pandemic. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 30th, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Programs can be shared with other potential listeners uh, via email, blogs and websites on social media networks. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
Welcome back. And that, uh, of course, is the legendary uh, Pointer Sisters with the love too good to last. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Saturday, uh, April 30th, uh, 2022. And uh, right now we want to move into a more in-depth examination of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Uh, The United States, uh, of course, has uh, been heavily involved uh, in stoking uh, the flames of the conflict uh, even prior to its commencement. Uh, United Nations uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, made a visit uh, just this last past week uh, to both Russia and Ukraine uh, in uh, what appears to have been a failed attempt uh, to bring about uh, some type of resolution uh, to the conflict. Uh, We have uh, a recording of uh, some of the dialogue between uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and uh, United Nations uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, that uh, took place uh, just uh, three days ago, four days ago uh, in Moscow. Let's listen to this recording. Secretary General, I'm very happy to see you. Good day. Can you hear the translation? Is everything okay? Perfect, Mr. President. Uh, Mr. Secretary General, I'm very happy to see you as uh, one of the countries, uh, founding members of the United Nations and a permanent member of the UN Security Council. Russia has always uh, supported this universal organization, and we believe that uh, it is not just a universal organization, but a, a unique organization in its way. There is no other organization such as this in the international community, and we support in all ways uh, the principles 
principles. It's, uh, it's based on and will continue to do that. Uh, to us, uh, it sounds very strange, uh, the statements of some of our colleagues uh, when they talk about uh, the rule-based world. We believe that the main rules uh, are the UN Charter and other documents adopted by this organization and not some papers uh, written by somebody to uh, reflect their interests. We were also surprised uh, uh, when we heard uh, some of our colleagues' statements that uh, some uh, in the world uh, uh, claim uh, some exclusive rights because the UN uh, Charter uh, says that uh, all the participants in the international communications are equal, irrespective of their might and size and their geographical situation. I think that uh, this is the same as uh, what uh, is written in our Bible, all people are equal. Uh, this is, uh, we will probably find the same in the Koran and Torah, all people are equal under God. That's why it sounds very strange, uh, those ideas that some uh, pretend uh, claim some exclusivity. We are living in a difficult world, in a complicated world. That's why we see uh, we have what we have. We are working with everybody. And, uh, of course, the United Nations was uh, created uh, at the time uh, following a crisis. It's gone through different periods in its development. And just several years ago, we heard that it's outdated, uh, that it's not necessary. It was. Uh, it happened at the time when it was in somebody's way. Uh, it stood in the way of some countries who wanted to achieve some place on the world arena. We've heard there, there are no other organizations like the UN, and we have to value it because it was created after the Second World War to solve uh, such conflicts. So we know that you are concerned uh, on the subject of uh, Russia conducting uh, military operations in Donbass and Ukraine. I think that this will be at the basis of our conversation today. In this connection, I wanted to note that, that uh, the whole problem uh, emerged after the, uh, the coup in 2014. This is an obvious fact. You can call it anything you want, and you can call any preferences or opinions about people who were involved, but that was an anti-constitutional putsch. And after that, uh, the situation emerged with the will uh, of the residents of Crimea and Sevastopol, who acted uh, effectively in the same way as the people who lived uh, and, and who live in Kosovo did. They decided to become independent, and then they approached us and asked us uh, to join the Russian Federation. The only difference was that in Kosovo, such a decision on sovereignty was uh, adopted by the parliament. But in Crimea and Sevastopol, it was uh, taken on a national referendum. The same problem uh, was at the, in the east of Ukraine, where the residents of two territories, at least two territories, uh, the constituent parts of Ukraine, uh, didn't agree with the results of the the coup d'etat, but they found themselves under pressure, including uh, through the use uh, of uh, military force, including uh, 
uh, warplanes and heavy military equipment. This is how the crisis in uh, Donbass began in the southeast of Ukraine, as we know. After another attempt by the Kiev authorities to solve this problem through military means, we signed agreements in Minsk. They were called the Minsk Agreements. That was an attempt to settle the situation through peaceful means in Donbass. Unfortunately for us, in the course of eight years, the people who lived there were blockaded. The Kiev authorities publicly announced that they would organize a blockade of those territory. They were not embarrassed to say that it was a blockade, even though initially they rejected that they were doing that, and they continued military pressure. In those conditions, after the Kiev authorities effectively, publicly, and I want to stress this, publicly, through the, their first officials, that they didn't uh, intend to comply with those Minsk uh, agreements uh, to prevent the genocide of those people. We had to declare those uh, states as independent. It was uh, forced. We had to do that to stop the suffering of people who lived in those territories. But our colleagues in the West preferred to ignore this. And after we recognized their independence, they turned to us with the request to provide military assistance to them, because uh, they were subjected to military aggression and under um, Article 50. 1.7 of the United Nations Charter, we have to do this, and we launched a special military operation. I would like to inform you that despite the fact that there is a military operation underway, we still expect and hope that we will be able to achieve agreements uh, through uh, a diplomatic uh, channel. We are conducting negotiations with, and, uh, in Istanbul, at the talks in Istanbul, and you've just been there. I've, I spoke to Erdog President Erdogan today that uh, you managed to um, achieve uh, a serious breakthrough because uh, the requirements of uh, international security of Ukraine, our Ukrainian colleagues uh, didn't uh, link them uh, with such a concept as internationally recognized borders of Ukraine. They brought uh, Crimea, Sevastopol, and um, the newly recognized uh, republics of Donbass, they made certain provisos there. But unfortunately, after the achievement of those agreements and, uh, and uh, after our clearly demonstrated uh, intentions uh, by us to create uh, favorable conditions uh, to continue the talks, we came across, uh, uh, we faced a provocation in Bucha, uh, to which uh, uh, the Russian army has uh, nothing to do. We know who staged that provocation, how they did it, and what people were involved in that provocation. And the position of our uh, negotiators uh, uh, for further settlement, uh, our negotiators' position changed uh, radically after that. They uh, uh, decided not to uh, move the issues of security guarantees uh, uh, and uh, 
the, Cr the Crimea and Sevastopol and uh, Donbass uh, issues uh, outside uh, the agreement. They just uh, rejected that. And in their draft agreement, uh, we pointed that in two articles that these issues should be solved at the, at the meeting of uh, the heads of state. Of course, we understand that uh, these issues, if we move them uh, to the level of the heads of state without solving them uh, preliminarily uh, in a draft agreement, uh, we know that they will never be settled uh, like that, and uh, to sign under security guarantees uh, in that case without solving uh, the issues of territorial guarantees uh, with respect to Crimea, Sevastopol, and the Donbas republics, we cannot do that. Nevertheless, the talks continue. Uh, they're being now held uh, in an online uh, format, and I hope that uh, this will lead us uh, to some positive results. This is what I wanted to say at the beginning. Uh, I'm sure we will have many issues uh, in connection with the situation. Maybe we will talk uh, about other issues. I'm very happy to see you. Welcome to Moscow. Thank you, Mr. President. I thank you for receiving me in the Kremlin. It is true. As the Secretary General, my main concern is the situation in Ukraine. I have a clear understanding that we need a multilateral world order based on the UN Charter and international law. Any rules which will be established must be established uh, with the consensus of the international community, and they should totally reflect the international law. I strongly believe in the international law in the UN Charter, and this is why we differ in our views on the situation which uh, take place. I understand that the Russian Federation has uh, several uh, claims uh, and complaints uh, about the situation in Ukraine and also in connection with the European global security. I've held uh, many positions in my life. I remember that I had uh, the possibility to meet you when I worked, when I was the head of the in the, uh, the, the EU and worked uh, for the government of uh, Portugal. We even met in the same room, maybe. I understand uh, your discontent, but uh, in our view, this uh, discontent uh, must be solved used on various uh, tools uh, suggested by the UN Charter. We strongly believe that the violation of uh, the territorial uh, integrity of any country fully contradicts the UN Charter, and we are deeply concerned in connection with what's happening uh, now, and we believe that uh, there was uh, an invasion into the territory of Ukraine. Nevertheless, I arrived in Moscow with a pragmatic approach. 
We're deeply concerned about the humanitarian situation in Ukraine. The United Nations is not part of the political negotiations. We've never been invited or allowed to take part in the Minsk process or the Normandy format. Uh, the UN was never part of those formats. We're not part of the talks. And I had uh, the opportunity to express this to Predigan Erdogan. We support the dialogue between the two countries, and we support uh, Turkey's uh, goodwill in promoting this approach. But our main task is uh, with regard to the humanitarian situation in Ukraine, and we want to improve it. This is exactly why I held uh, a meeting today with Minister Sergei Lavrov, and I presented two proposals. First, to implement our proposal, which we presented at the meeting of the uh, with the Ministry of Defense. Our team works uh, with the Ministry of Defense uh, to clarify the situation with regard to uh, uh, humanitarian corridors and humanitarian aid, and that cooperation was uh, fruitful. But to be honest, we come across uh, situations when uh, Ukraine uh, establishes one corridor and Russia establishes another corridor, and the situation is such that uh, those corridors uh, do not work. Therefore, we propose that uh, there should be a humanitarian contact group uh, represented by uh, the UN, uh, Russia, and Ukraine will discuss the situation so that these corridors will be truly effective, so that nobody will have an excuse to uh, sabotage those corridors. On the other part, we understand uh, the difficult situation in Mariupol. Again, as for this situation, I would like to say that the United Nations is prepared to fully mobilize its logistical capacities, its human resources, together with the, the MCK and uh, with the, uh, the Red Cross, and uh, Mr. Maurer is prepared to support this initiative. We have to work together with the armed forces of Ukraine and Russia so that once and for all this problem will be solved. This will be an initial operation to evacuate civilians from the Azovstal steelworks. Russia is permanently excused that it doesn't conduct this evacuation. On the other hand, Russia has announced the establishment of corridors which are not being used. And we are together with the Red Cross, with the Ukraine and Russia, we are prepared to assess the situation. And within two or three days, this will allow us to uh, evacuate those who want to be evacuated. Of course, this is a voluntary process. On the other hand, as for Mariupol, many people uh, and, and a large uh, area of the city has been destroyed. Many people are still there and they are in a difficult situation. They want to leave the city. Some want to leave uh, for Russia. Others want to leave for the territory controlled by the Ukrainian authorities. And together with the Red Cross, we will use all our resources to work together with the authorities of Russia and Ukraine 
in order to create this opportunity to guarantee the evacuation of those people. This will be a longer process. We have to establish uh, more concrete uh, forms of cooperation, but we are really interested in this. We pursue only one aim, is to alleviate the situation of those people and to alleviate their suffering. As I already said, this is uh, the opportunity uh, to, uh, to unite uh, our agencies and the, and the Red Cross and to do this process uh, totally transparent uh, so that nobody will accuse uh, the other party that something is not taken in. Uh, sorry. I am really well uh, aware of all the documents of the International Court of the UN on the situation in Kosovo. I remember very well the decision of the International Court, which says that uh, when implementing the right to self-determination, uh, this or that territory of any country does not have to ask uh, for permission to declare their sovereignty to the central authorities of that country. That was uh, written uh, in relation to Kosovo, and that was the decision of the International Court. And that decision was supported by everybody. I personally read all the comments from uh, the legal and uh, administrative and political bodies of the United States and the European countries. Everybody supported that. If this is so, then the republics of Donbass, the Donetsk People's Republics and the Lugansk People's Republic have the same right without uh, applying to the central authorities in Kiev to declare their sovereignty, because the president exists. Is this so? Do you agree with this? First of all, Mr. President, the United Nations doesn't recognize Kosovo. But the court, the court recognized this. Let me finish. The court recognized it. If this, is, uh, if this president has been created, then the republics of Donbass could have done the same way. Having done this, and, and, and then on our part, we got the right to recognize them as independent states. Many states in the world have done that, uh, including our opponents uh, in relation to Kosovo. Many countries in the world have recognized Kosovo. This is a fact. Many states, many Western states have recognized it as an independent state. We've done the same with relation to the republics of Donbass, but after we did that, they uh, applied to us with a request to provide military help to them against uh, the country which was conducting military operations against, it, against them. Uh, we were entitled to do this uh, under Article 51.7 uh, of the UN Charter. We will discuss about this later. I want to... Um, comments on the second part of your statement about Mariupol. The situation is complicated there and, and tragic. But it's simple, really. 
I've uh, spoken to President Erdogan today. He said that uh, military operations were taking place there. No, the op military operations have ended there. There are no military operations in Mari Mariupol. They've stopped. Part of the armed forces of Ukraine, which were deployed in other industrial areas, they have surrendered. They almost 1,300 people surrendered. They were taken prisoners, but there were even more of the more. There are some wounded there. They are kept in uh, normal conditions. Wounded uh, persons are receiving qualified medical assistance by our doctors. If the Azovstal steel works are completely sealed, is completely uh, sealed off. I ordered uh, not to assault it. There are no military, direct military operations there. Yes, we hear from uh, uh, the Ukrainian authorities that there are civilians there. In that case, the servicemen of the Ukrainian army must release them or they are acting as terrorists in many countries, as uh, the ISIS in Syria. They are hiding behind the civilians. This, the easiest thing to do is to release them. You are talking about uh, uh, the Russian uh, humanitarian corridors that they are not working. No, they lied to you. They are uh, working with our assistance, uh, more than 100 thousand people left Mariupol, 130 or 140,000 people left Mariupol, and they're free to go anywhere. Some people want to go to uh, Russia, some to Ukraine, uh, anywhere. We don't hold them back, and we provide uh, all possible support and assistance to them. Uh, civilians can also do the same if they're there at the Azovstal works. They can just leave. An example of civilized attitude to those people is obvious. Everybody can see that. Just talk to those people who left. What would be easier for the troops there or for the representatives of the Nationalist Battalion? Just, leave, just release those people. It's a crime to, heal the, to hold the people as a human shield if they're there. We are in touch with them, with those who is uh, holed up there in uh, the basement of the Azovstal works. They also have good examples. Uh, their comrades in arms uh, have uh, left and uh, laid down their arms. More than a, hun a thousand people, uh, 1,300 actually, and nothing has happened to them. If you want to see uh, uh, esteemed uh, Secretary General and the representatives of the Red Cross and the United Nations, how they're being kept and where and how medical assistance is being provided to wounded. So the wounded, we can uh, help you. This is the easiest solution of this difficult uh, or seemingly difficult issue. Let's uh, discuss this. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. 
Those were excerpts uh, from a discussion uh, between uh, Russian uh, President Vladimir Putin and the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. Uh, That was excerpts from the talks that took place uh, just this last past Wednesday in Moscow uh, when the uh, Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, visited uh, Russia for talks over the Ukrainian situation. Uh, After the meeting between the Secretary General and the President, uh, there was a press conference uh, that was held between uh, Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres and uh, Russian Federation Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. And uh, here is um, a recording of uh, the press conference on uh, April 26th, uh, just uh, four days ago. So we're going to go across to, to uh, Moscow now where uh, we had the Russian Foreign Minister and Antonio Guterres speaking. Of the European continent in Ukraine in the popular Republic of Donetsk. I'd like to come back to the UN statutes bylaws. I told our friend, Secretary General Guterres, how we see things. This is a situation which is getting worse by and by. And then there was a decisive thing that happened. That was when our American colleagues and their allies decided to not know any limits to broaden this war and to strengthen this unipolar war, this unipolar world. Now, we believe that all of this was uh, made to counter Russia. And for many years, uh, with that goal in mind, Ukraine was used as a place for weapons, as a place to contain Russia. And so this stimulated the activities of the Ukrainian government that would deny anything Russian, that would deny the culture and the very language of Russia. And in the law, there were always new laws that were uh, acted upon to confront Nazi theory and Nazi practices. There was, uh, the Secretary General knows well, decisions made by President Putin, who clearly said what the reasons were for this special military operation in Ukraine. These are the reasons. First, we set out to protect civilian populations. We are currently in contact with our colleagues in the UN and the International Red Cross. We leave no stone unturned to help those populations to um, decrease their suffering. UN colleagues, after the contacts with the Secretary General, with our Ministry of Defense, which took place about two months ago, almost two months ago, we agreed to set up a working group here, right here in Moscow, and with the Ministry of Defense, and in collaboration with the Ministry of Defense, UN um, representatives coordinate humanitarian aid. 
The UN Directorate on Humanitarian Issues sent humanitarian aid to Ukraine, and so that aid every day is sent out to citizens in the Lugansk and Donetsk areas. The Russian Ministry of Defense and the Ministry for Emergency Issues and other ministries keep on working towards that goal. Today we spoke we discussed measures to strengthen our cooperation, the cooperation with the UN departments. And we're going to keep up this work as it is required by developments on the ground. Now, obviously, we also mentioned um, the um, future of UN and the attempts by Western colleagues to try and solve those issues outside of the UN. Uh, all kind of appeals were sent out uh, to set up partnerships. They said this is um, uh, an elitist club. Uh, France and Germany, for instance, were mentioned, and the Union of uh, Multilateralists. Uh, this is a UN meeting uh, it's about. For instance, last year, the U.S. Uh, set up a democracy summit and they decided who would take part. And we uh, told our colleagues today that this is a message, a dangerous message for the UN because it is an attempt to try and um, change the UN statutes. The UN were based, created on the basis of sovereignty and independence of states. And once again, we wanted to remind our colleagues of that, and we'll keep doing that. We'll keep telling them about that. We don't want new U.S. or other capitals to do any differently. I would like to thank very gratefully the Secretary General who took up this initiative to have these contacts. We um, accepted those contacts and we think we should keep up this regular dialogue uh, to coordinate our positions. In spite of all the difficulties that we come across in world affairs, in spite of all that, it is important, it is critical to keep up those sincere discussions. We have to go back to basics, the statutes, the bylaws of the UN. It is on that basis that the UN on that basis that we should build up a development, a development path on the basis of multilateralism. It is a key concern today. Once again, I would like to underline that the Secretary General was quite willing to discuss on this basis. Thank you. As Secretary General of the United Nations, I came to Moscow as a messenger of peace. My objectives and my agenda is strictly linked to save lives and to reduce suffering. I had a very frank discussion with the Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, and it is clear that there are two different positions on what is happening in Ukraine. 
According to the Russian Federation, what is taking place is a special military operation with the objectives that were announced. According to the UN, in line with the resolutions passed by the General Assembly, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a violation of its territorial integrity and against the Charter of the United Nations. But it is my deep conviction that the sooner we end this war, the better for the people of Ukraine, for the people of the Russian Federation, and those far beyond. The United Nations has repeatedly called for ceasefires to protect civilians and to facilitate a political dialogue to reach a solution so far that has not been possible. Today, across the Donbass, a violent battle is underway with tremendous death and destruction. Many civilians are being killed and hundreds of thousands of people are in life-threatening conditions trapped by the conflict. I'm concerned about the repeated reports of violations of international humanitarian and human rights law and possible war crimes, and they require independent investigation for effective accountability. And we urgently need humanitarian corridors that are truly safe and effective and uh, uh, that are respected by all to evacuate civilians and deliver much-needed assistance. To that end, I have proposed the establishment of a humanitarian contact group bringing together the Russian Federation, Ukraine and the United Nations to look for opportunities for the opening of safe corridors with local cessation of hostilities and to guarantee that they are actually effective. Simultaneously, we recognize that we face a crisis within a crisis in Mariupol. Thousands of civilians are in dire need of life-saving humanitarian assistance and many of evacuation. The United Nations is ready to fully mobilize its human and logistical resources to help save lives in Mariupol. My proposal is for a coordinated work of the United Nations, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and the Ukraine and Russian Federation forces to enable the safe evacuation of those civilians who want to leave, both inside the Azovstal plan and in the city, in any direction they choose, and to deliver the humanitarian aid required. And this is not just about what is happening in Ukraine as we are seeing shockwaves around the world. The dramatic acceleration of the increase of the prices for food and energy that was already taking place in the last year are causing enormous suffering to hundreds of millions of the most vulnerable people worldwide. And this caps on top of the shock of the continued COVID-19 pandemic and the uneven access to resources for recovery that particularly penalize developing countries around the world. And so the sooner peace is established, the better for the sake of Ukraine, Russia, and for the world. And it's very important, even in these moments of difficulty, to keep alive the values of multilateralism. We need a world that is multipolar, with multilateral institutions, and those multilateral institutions must abide by the UN Charter 
and by international law. And abiding by the UN Charter and by international law, recognizing full equality among states, they hopefully will be an instrument that will allow us once again to come together as humankind and address the dramatic challenges we face from climate change to epidemics and to many others and in which the only war we should have would be a war of those that put the planet at risk. Уважаемые коллеги, переходим к вопросам. Пожалуйста, Индия Тудей. Good afternoon. I am Geeta Mohan from India Today. Mike, uh, I have a question each from both the leadership, beginning with the United Nations Secretary General, sir. Mr. Guterres, sir, there are allegations and counter-allegations regarding um, genocide, war crimes, human shields, as also uh, reports of chemical weapons and biological weapons being used. You spoke about contact group and humanitarian corridors. You also spoke about investigations. Will the United Nations look at independent investigations, creating a team, an investigating team, to look into the facts on the ground? And, and my question to the Foreign Minister, sir. Uh, both sides, whether it's the United Nations or the international community, are looking at negotiated settlement and ceasefire. Should Russia look at a negotiated settlement? Is there a country or an organization that could act as a mediator? Who would Russia consider as a mediating agency? Thank you. Well, the UN Secretariat uh, has not uh, the power to do investigations of that kind. Um, uh, we have uh, the International Criminal Court. Uh, we have uh, uh, the different mechanisms that uh, exist uh, in the uh, human rights uh, system, namely commissions of inquiry. Uh, it is not my intention to promote an investigation myself. I have not the authority for it. But I think it's very important to have independent investigations in order to have full credibility and full accountability. As regards your question, um, I could tell you about the position of various international players. Um, of course, it should all be founded on the UN Charter and on its principles, the sovereignty of nations in particular. The Secretary General mentioned the UN um, resolution that condemned Russia, and it said that what is going on in Ukraine is an invasion. It is an attempt, an infringement of sovereignty and territorial integrity. And this uh, resolution was voted on. But various countries told us that they were forced, that they were, um, they were uh, pressured in corridors. And the U.S. Uh, pressured them on, their, on the basis of their accounts or in the U.S. or on the basis of their children who study in the U.S. And in spite of those pressures, there was no unanimity uh, during the adoption of this resolution. Several dozens of countries refused to agree. 
So I understand that the UN should be, should base itself, that we should be based on UN resolutions, but we should also keep in mind resolutions by the Security Council, especially when the 15 members of the Security Council have voted unanimously on a resolution. In February 2015, there was a unanimously adopted resolution, and it related to the Minsk agreements and the, the implementation and the measures to take in order to implement those Minsk uh, agreements. And all of that was voted upon, and it related uh, to the Donetsk and Lukansk republics. President, the Ukrainian President Poroshenko and then uh, Mr. Zelensky, the Prime Minister, signed off on those Minsk agreements, and those uh, agreements should have been implemented regarding the status of those republics in order to uh, bring about changes in the, in the Constitution, and we should still maintain the territorial integrity of Ukraine, obviously. So, in agreement with Donetsk and Lugansk, elections had to be uh, set up. Uh, from what I remember, the UN Secretariat did not respond to the direct sabotage of those Minsk agreements uh, by Kiev. There is a Security Council resolution standing, and in spite of that, the UN did not respond. We mentioned that today. I'll be honest. We've known each other for a long time, and we have excellent relations, friendly relations. But we cannot keep on postponing again and again those resolutions. At this stage of international relations, now is the time to implement those resolutions. We would accept for someone to unilaterally with uh, whoever allies he may have, decide on what's gonna, uh, what the world uh, can do. Either we do that or we behave on the basis of the UN Charter. This is the state of play. Now, you should ask those who ignore the UN Charter. You should uh, ask them to be accountable. Now, Speaking of culture and uh, civilization, this is what we uh, are based on. What is sacred is the UN Charter. It is the greatest of all documents from times immemorial. And the UN Charter should be a catalyst for a dialogue, a strong and sincere dialogue without trying to use force to solve problems, including financial strength or economic strength that we find in the West. Our Western colleagues try to set up a parallel system, which is quite, which goes against the law. Now, as regards decisions, uh, that is a negotiated uh, solution, well, clearly, we would like President Zelensky to support that. See how he behaved, how Zelensky and his delegation behaved. First, they received our new proposals one week ago, and then they said, no, we didn't receive them. It's very sad to see that flip-flopping 
Actually, we don't believe that they are interested by those talks in the West. There are individuals who uh, don't want Russia to win, who, who want to defeat Russia. And those individuals keep on providing weapons to Ukraine. It, this goes on. Negotiations won't get anywhere. But, of course, we are willing to pursue those discussions. And we are in favor of humanitarian uh, solutions. Humanitarian corridors have been, uh, we tried to set them up, but they've been uh, uh, negated by the Ukrainian side, especially by the Azov regiment using Nazi symbols, Waffen-SS symbols. And I believe that Mr. Zelensky, in an interview with CN, said, we have many of those battalions, and they are just the way they are. That's what he said exactly, but it was uh, cut off from the interview. I think they were ashamed to broadcast such uh, stuff on Western media because this is what Zelensky actually believes. It is shameful, of course, to admit that. So we are in favor of discussions. If there are any interesting ideas, we are willing to listen to them. As regards mediation, in previous um, stages, Ukrainians didn't talk to us. We met them three times in Belarusian. Belarus and then in Turkey. So we are grateful to those parties who enabled those discussions. However, for the time being, I think it is still early days to speak of a mediator. We are still awaiting um, an answer to our latest proposal, a common document that we conveyed uh, almost 10 days ago. And President Zelensky apparently didn't know about that. He didn't know about our proposal. I'd like to say that the Secretariat uh, entirely respects and abides by all resolutions of the General Assembly and of the Security Council. And today, if I regret something, is that the UN was not allowed to be part of the uh, Normandy format to follow the Minsk Agreement and to be able to form a very clear cut opinion about the failure of the Minsk Agreement. On the other hand, I would like to say that um, I understand that the Russian Federation has many grievances, but the UN Charter foresees a large number of mechanisms in which grievances can be addressed, and namely with the recourse to the International Court of Justice or other, other mechanisms if all the other uh, ones foreseen in the Charter fail. But there is one thing that is true and obvious, and that no arguments can change. We have not Ukrainian troops in the territory of the Russian Federation, but we have Russian troops in the territory of the Ukrainian Federation. This is true, I can confirm that.
I have two questions. To Mr. Lavrov, today there will be a vote on the resolution on uh, voting rights. Whenever there is a veto opposed by one of the five permanent members, there's always this resolution coming back and being put on the table. How, where do you stand regarding that initiative? Um, that would um, ban any veto after discussion and a vote within the General Assembly. And then I have a question to the General Secretary. How do you see that reform on banning um, voting rights? As regards the current resolution, that was submitted to the General Assembly, it will have absolutely no impact on discussions taking place regarding the reforms of the Security Council and the veto right. The veto right will not be banned because it is one of the pillars of the UN and without a veto right, the UN will be sent adrift because the members of the Security Council base their action on the consensus principle and they try and steer clear of strong differences. Having said this, the world is changing and the U.S. are striving to set up a unipolar world forever. But not everyone is in agreement. And we said on several occasions that the Security Council must um, put a stop to one camp being over-represented. There are six Western countries among those 15 countries. We would like to see other countries from other regions, from Africa, from Asia. We directly mentioned to our partners uh, the opportunity to, um, to have Brazil or to have uh, candidates from Africa. So, speaking of a, that draft resolution that would provide for a discussion within the General Assembly, after the uh, veto with it, uh, this is totally different. This is about democratizing uh, decision-making, and we are quite um, willing to join that consensus if there is a consensus. It is important to have a consensus principle. Actually, sometimes there is a minority agreeing on a decision, and then there are other votes because of different, different interests involved. Let me go one step further. The Security Council occasionally cannot decide, not because of a veto, but because there is an abstention by six or seven countries. So this is another situation 
where we see strong differences within the Security Council. And I believe that the General Assembly should also mull over the situation. I believe it is quite uh, wholesome to discuss this. If a country uses his veto right, it is probably because he has reasons. It has good reasons. And if it is about Russia, I think we can justify our positions within the Security Council. If I am able to interpret those that uh, so many years ago uh, created the Charter, I believe the reason of the veto was to avoid the situation in which uh, a confrontation among uh, the members of uh, uh, the, the group of permanent members might lead to another global war. And so the veto was a kind of a, an element introduced to avoid this kind of danger. It is also true that as time uh, went by, uh, the veto has probably been used too many times, as uh, in many circumstances it's used without vital interests of a country uh, taking uh, existing. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm very much in favor of a moderate use of the veto, having no illusions about the possibility of changing it. I don't think that it will be possible to have a majority, two-thirds majority in the General Assembly with the five members agreeing on changing that. Uh, but uh, I also believe it's important to enlarge the Security Council and to have a more equitative representation, particularly the country like Africa. Can't Africa is a double victim of colonialism, first of all because it suffered colonialism itself, and second because many of the, Europe, the countries only gained independence when uh, the international institutions have already been created. And so Africa is underrepresented in decision-making processes in most of the multilateral institutions. And so I do believe that a stronger representation of developing countries in many areas, uh, from the Bretton Woods institutions to the Security Council, would be an important reform. Chinese television. I would like to ask you a question, several questions to Minister Lavrov. How did Russia respond to the Ukrainian proposal to have a negotiating, negotiating meeting in Mariupol? Second question, what steps were taken by Russia regarding an increase in uh, weapons deliveries by from the U.S. I heard that proposal, a fairly dramatic proposal by the Ukrainians, by the Ukrainians. Um, we had, we, uh, the team that had discussions with our representatives in Belarusia or elsewhere, uh, that was about the setting up a meeting near to the Azov Hospital. Uh, that was a way for Ukrainians to stage their, um, to uh, stage their action. So they wanted to stage some action to appeal to our emotions. If they wanted to have negotiations, they should uh, respond to the proposal that we sent 10 days ago. Mr. Zelensky apparently have, hasn't heard about that proposal. 
As regards weapon deliveries in Kiev, not just from the U.S., but from other countries, European countries are being forced by the U.S. to send weapons, and the, the U.S. Is carry out those deliveries as well. We said that on several occasions. As soon as those weapons are on the Ukrainian soil, they become legitimate targets within our special military operation. Our troops protect and defend the rights of people who were bombed for eight years, and all of those who were outside uh, of this uh, know that, uh, for instance, France and Germany, who were among the co-authors of the Minsk Agreement for so many years, didn't say anything while there was so much repression of the populations in Donbass and Russian speakers and also in the rest of Ukraine. You can see for yourself what was done against the Russian language. There were bans, media banned, some media banned uh, the Russian language, or banned Russian interests. And then there was another decision made to ban the Russian language in everyday, uh, in everyday life. And then Nazi ideology was uh, used. So all of the countries involved in the Minsk framework, not, none of them said anything. And then, even at that time, there were weapons that were delivered to Ukraine, and they were dangerous. For instance, military bases on the Azov Sea and the uh, British uh, ships in the Azov Sea. But we felt no sympathy from any countries in the world when we proposed, we made a last attempt, a last ditch attempt for Africans and for NATO to conduct negotiations, not to broaden those military and political bases. So now the time has come for us to liquidate the consequences of those actions by the West that fly in the face of the principle of not broadening the um, conflict. As a question from Sputnik. Good afternoon. Mr. Lavrov, good afternoon, Mr. Guterres. I have a question for both of you. Mr. Lavrov, the first diplomat of the Taliban government was accredited recently. Is there a drift towards recognizing the Taliban government in Kabul? Is Russia willing to work with the Afghan forces to set up a government that be an inclusive government? as uh, said the, uh, the Iranian authorities, Mr. Guterres. What do you think of the illegal um, appropriation of Russian properties in the U.S.? And also, 
when Russian diplomats did not receive visas to participate, participate in various UN uh, meetings. What does the U.S. Secretary do in, to urge the U.S. to uh, step up to the plate and to uh, be uh, responsible in terms of its international agreements? As regards Afghanistan, you uh, urged uh, for um, properties, um, Afghan properties to be liberated. As regards Afghan diplomats, we received in Moscow a diplomat that was sent by the Taliban government. But this is not a, an official recognition of the Afghan, of the Taliban government. And we support the various neighboring countries, including China, that participate, participated with Pakistan in a regional meeting. And we also work on the basis of uh, recognizing realities on the ground. We have contacts um, between our representatives and uh, Taliban representatives as regards economic operations, uh, as regards the uh, Russian presence in Afghanistan. There's a number of companies that are working there. Over 20 years when the, when the NATO coalition was in Afghanistan, there was not a single uh, company that was set up in Afghanistan. You know how, and you know how, what the end was like. We would like to fully recognize the Afghan government, but that would be conditional on setting up an, an inclusive government, and especially as regards religion, because they have ethnic differences, but for the time being, they're all Taliban. It's an all Taliban government. Now, the Taliban government said that those were its goals, and we work with political forces present in Afghanistan, in Kabul, President Karzai, and they want a dialogue with the Taliban as well, and we uh, want to promote that kind of contact and dialogue uh, to um, start this road on this dialogue. We have decided since the very beginning to engage actively uh, with the Taliban. Um, and we have a passive humanitarian operation in Afghanistan. But we recognize that humanitarian aid is not enough. In the absence of cash, in the absence of liquidity in the economy in Afghanistan, the collapse of the economy can have devastating consequences for the people of Afghanistan. So we have been uh, uh, claiming uh, that the international community needs to create the conditions for cash to be injected in the Afghan economy. We have done it ourselves. The UN is bringing by plane banknotes to Afghanistan. We already did about 500 million US dollars. We have been pushing the World Bank uh, in order for the World Bank uh, to uh, um, uh, disburse uh, amounts that are foreseen in relation to um, uh, Afghanistan. 
and uh, uh, we are working together with the Central Bank and the American Treasury to remove the obstacles that uh, still exist in relation to the need to unfreeze the uh, uh, money that is available. And we hope that this will be true for all the countries uh, that have these uh, uh, assets uh, frozen. Um, he, uh, we believe naturally that uh, we need to do everything for the good of the people in Afghanistan, but uh, we are also engaging with the Taliban very seriously in relation to the inclusivity of the government and uh, inclusivity between men and women, but also inclusivity in order for Uzbeks, Tajiks, Hazaras, as it was said, uh, to be fully included in the political process in Afghanistan. Uh, on the need for Afghanistan not to be a base for any kind of terrorist activities uh, outside its territory, and of course also to be able to defeat terrorism inside the territory, and uh, uh, on the need uh, uh, to respect a number of fundamental rights. And here there are two questions of great concern to me. One is the possibility of girls to be in school, especially in secondary school and uh, uh, in the university. There was a um, negative decision recently. I hope it will be overcome quickly. And the second, the right of women to work and uh, to uh, exercise uh, their uh, professions uh, in the country, as it is happening to the um, uh, uh, UN staff, uh, female UN staff, that uh, is indeed uh, allowed to work at the present moment. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we believe that it is very important that all member states, including the Russian Federation, have a normal treatment of uh, uh, their visa requirements. It is essential to have the full participation of all countries in UN procedures, and we will be keeping a, a very strong position uh, with the host country in order to guarantee that uh, we move swiftly in that direction. А вот сейчас ответили вам на него. Это такая у нас есть, у дипломатов такая есть манера. So there were a few questions, and, I've, and uh, all of us answered those questions. The two of us answered those questions, because we are diplomats. Thank you very much. Good. Uh, Come back to me. Welcome back. And uh, that was a press conference uh, that was held in Moscow just this last past Wednesday, featuring uh, United Nations uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres and Russian Federation uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov asking uh, questions uh, related to the situation in Ukraine, and of course, there at the end, a uh, question about the status of uh, Afghanistan, the status of uh, Afghan-Russian Federation relations and relations between the United Nations and uh, the Taliban government in Afghanistan. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, our worldwide radio broadcast. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
Sharp, and uh, I really love you. We're here at uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 30th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another uh, edition of our program. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to this program, along with 1,100 other episodes of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Right now we're going to go and listen to a report on uh, the international situation uh, through uh, the world today. Let's listen in. Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. U.S. President Joe Biden is asking Congress for 33 billion U.S. dollar additional aid for Ukraine amid escalating conflict. U.S. economy shrinks in the first quarter of the year amid Omicron surge. And German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is in Japan for a two-day visit, his first trip to Asia since taking office. This is World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm your host, Anna, in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. U.S. President Joe Biden is asking Congress to provide $33 billion U.S. billion in military, economic, and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Biden's request includes more than $20 billion for security and military assistance, notably $5 billion for weapons from American stockpiles. The announcement of the new funds is the latest escalation in tensions over the war in Ukraine. Last month, the U.S. Congress approved more than $13 billion aid for Kiev. So for more on the latest development surrounding the Ukraine war, my colleague Ding Heng had a talk with Andrew Kripko, Moscow-based political analyst. Now, first of all, uh, the U.S. Congress is likely to approve Biden's latest request because there is likely to be a wide bipartisan support for this. So how much do these additional aids matter to Ukraine? I think that they're very significant, and there are several reasons why I believe that. The first is that Ukraine's military-industrial complex has been totally destroyed throughout the course of the conflict. This is not just a statement of the Russian Defense Ministry, but also of Zelensky's presidential advisor, Mr. Arrestovich. So we can conclude that since Ukraine is incapable of producing any military equipment to meet its own needs, it is therefore entirely dependent on its Western ally, specifically the United States. So what this can do is this can uh, help them replenish a lot of their losses. It is an imperfect solution because obviously it's better to produce your own weapons than receive them from abroad. But it also signifies a very serious escalation of the conflict. And the mm-hmm. reason being is that the U.S. is all but officially in a proxy war with Russia through Ukraine. I mean, they do not openly acknowledge that it's a proxy war, but for all intents and purposes, it is. One of the other reasons why it's such an escalation is Russia has said previously, and they have made good on these uh, claims, that they will um, strike these weapons convoys inside of Ukraine because the weapons are being used to kill Russian servicemen. So we do see a possibility of a further escalation and directly by proxy in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And then the last aspect that makes this so important is the lend-lease dynamics, which recall the World War II aid 
that the U.S. gave to the countries fighting Nazi Germany. This feeds into the information warfare narrative that the modern-day Russian Federation is very similar to Nazi Germany. Obviously, that's not true, but this is a way to manipulate public consciousness and get more Americans to support this aid, despite their economy declining by 1.4% over the last quarter. Ironically, both news items were released the same day. The U.S. is economic decline and the massive scaling up of military aid to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So, do you think the flurry of aids announced by Mr. Biden in recent weeks is a signal that Washington is increasingly assertive or taking a sort of increasingly assertive approach to the war in Ukraine? Yes.、Uh What we're seeing here is that this has become the top foreign policy item of the Biden administration, and will likely continue into whoever ultimately ultimately succeeds him, whether in 2024 or 2028.、Uh, this is because this has been a geostrategically game-changing conflict, which has、uh, most certainly created what people are now accurately describing as a new Cold War between Russia and NATO. So yes, this is a very very uh, significant uh, development. It shows the U.S. is trying to lead NATO from the front. It has thus far succeeded in galvanizing almost the entirety of the alliance. Even European countries that had hitherto been reluctant to scale up their、uh, defense spending each year in alignment with NATO requirements and dispatching military equipment to Ukraine have all but fallen into line here. So we see that the U.S. has reasserted its previously declining hegemony over the EU, but I would argue that this development is contrary to the EU's objective interests because of the economic risks that are entailed with、uh, energy disruptions from Russia. By refusing to pay for gas with rubles, and as well as the fact that any、uh, potentially worse economic crisis will worsen their global economic competitiveness and only be to the benefit of their American and British competitors. So I kind of have mixed results on this. I, of course, do not support the reassertion of American hegemony, but I do acknowledge that it has succeeded in Europe. But at the same time, I acknowledge this is against European interests. So it's a very intriguing development, and the legacy will last quite a while, probably for our entire lifetime.、Mm. Earlier, you have already talked a little about this most recent economic data in the United States. Now, Biden says the United States has mostly exhausted the previous funding allocated by the U.S. Congress. So I guess here there is a question: Do you think the United States? Over the long term, is really capable of sustaining its aid, economic and military, to Ukraine if this this war becomes a protracted war. Okay, the short answer is no, but I'd like to elaborate on why I still think they're going to try to sustain it.、Uh, if we look at it economically and in terms of logistics, yes, the U.S. has run through some of its stockpiles. According to reports earlier in April, it had already depleted one third of its Javelin anti-tank missile stockpile in the course of just several weeks. Which goes to show just how quickly they're burning through it. But if we look at the larger global economic trends in the West, I mean, you have deficit spending. We see the U.S. is in greater debt than it's ever been. European economies are going into debt. This、uh, financial economy, which doesn't have much of a tangible base, granted, the U.S. is still an industrial powerhouse, but the financial aspect of the economy is beginning to dominate other、uh, elements of it. It will more than likely continue going into、uh, deficit spending, going into debt. 
and scaling up these operations and aid, even though this is contrary to the uh, interests of the average American. Mind you, there are so many homeless people in Los Angeles right now. I mean, it's enough just to Google L.A. homeless, and some of the pictures you see are just heartbreaking. I mean, with that mm. being the case, an American suffering to spend over now $33 billion on Ukraine, which is several times more than the U.S. even gives to Israel, which had hitherto been its top international ally anywhere in the world, it goes to show that this is a complete change of policy. The U.S. has grand strategic reasons for doing so. It's willing to go even further into debt at the expense of average Americans' living standards to continue financing this war. So mm. I do not believe this is going to change, even though it's counterproductive and contradictory to its interests, I expect it to maintain the course and, if anything, further scale up the aid. Mm. So some people say this most recent announcement that U.S. diplomats will return to Kiev this week, some people say this is a signal that Washington is still prioritizing resolving the conflict through diplomacy. What is your take? I would respectfully disagree with that assessment for several reasons. The first is that if we look at, if we look at that against the backdrop of scaling up aid, it's questionable whether or not the U.S. is sincere about a diplomatic solution. The second reason is that Russia has always been consistent in what is requested of Ukraine in order to halt the ongoing special military operation. But Zelensky, according to Russia, is operating under American influence and therefore is not negotiating sincerely. And if you look at the third aspect, the ongoing talks between Russia and Ukraine, I mean, they have been occurring even in spite of the absence of U.S. diplomatic officials in Kiev. So I'm not so sure that's going to change it. But I do believe that in order for this conflict to end, the U.S. and Russia will have to negotiate directly because I do not regard Ukraine as behaving independently. I agree with the Russian assessment that it's operating under American influence. Now, granted, American diplomats can negotiate with their Russian counterparts without physically being in Kiev. I mean, they can do so remotely, just like many rounds of negotiations between Russia and Ukraine have already been conducted. So I do believe that diplomacy is still on the cards. However, I uh, disagree with the uh, assessment that this is being prioritized by the U.S. administration at this point. It is one track, but it is not the primary track in my estimation. Mm. So on the Ukrainian side, why do you think uh, Ukrainians are now starting to issue some sort of warnings that this war in Ukraine may go beyond Ukraine to extend to the neighboring Moldova? Okay, in brief, because this is a very complicated issue, there's an unresolved, a.k.a. frozen conflict in the former Soviet Republic that has resulted in the deployment of several thousand Russian troops there over around the past three decades or so. Uh, Moldova claims the territory as its own. Transnistria, the name of this breakaway republic, mm. has declared independence. It's not recognized by any UN member state. However, there are actually concerns that Ukraine is not being sincere in warning about the conflict spread, that actually there might be a plot by Ukraine Moldova and Romania, mind you, Moldovans and Romanians are very similar. There has been some movements to unify, or as the nationalists say, reunify these territories. Again, the history is complex and yes. beyond the scope of what I can explain here, where there might be a joint um, Ukrainian, uh, Moldovan, and Romanian attack against this breakaway region in which Russian troops are uh, stationed. 
in order to open up a new front to distract Russia from its gains in eastern and southern Ukraine. So that's actually how I assess those warnings. I do think they are credible, regardless of one's interpretation of who's, you know, trying to start a fight here. I do believe the situation is very critical, and we need to keep an eye on it. Anything can happen at any time. The breakaway republic has been rocked by several terrorist attacks over the past week, and they are right now literally on red alert. So uh, it's a very unstable situation on that front. Mm. So, Andrew, we still have 90 seconds before we need to wrap up this discussion with you today. Uh, I mean,、okay. it's being reported that more than 1,000 Syrian and Russian mercenaries deployed by Kremlin in Libya now have been relocated away from that northern African country. Do you think this is a signal that the war in Ukraine is beginning to affect Russia's troop deployments, or even over the longer term, Russia's strategic interests elsewhere? Very briefly, I'm always skeptical whenever I read reports about alleged Russian mercenaries. We know in the past there have been false reports about them. I'm not denying that such、uh, private military organizations、mm. exist. I just do not believe that all the reports are accurate about them. I also believe that Russia has enough forces on its own, with with its own conventional military, to.、Uh, Sustain the operation and to succeed without needing to rely on、uh, private military organizations. So that's my very brief response to the question. That's Andrew Kripko, Moscow-based American political analyst, speaking with Ding Hong. You are listening to Road Today. The U.S. economy shrank at an annual rate of 1.4 percent in the first quarter of the year amid the Omicron surge and elevated inflation, raising the fear of a looming recession. The latest data marked the economy's first contraction since the COVID-19 pandemic forced the economy to contract sharply in early 2020. The March Consumer Price Index surged 8.5 percent from a year earlier, the largest 12-month increase. Seeing the period ending December 1981, according to the data from the Labor Department, that compared with the 7.9 percent year-on-year gain in February. So, for more on this, my colleague Liu Kun earlier talked with Wang Dian, chief economist of Hansen Bank, China. How do you look at this recent、uh, contraction? Is it surprising to you at all? What might be some of the reasons?、Uh, this contraction is very much a surprise to the global analysts. Because when we look at the U.S. economy, it looked like the fundamentals would have sustained at least positive growth this year, although not very high. A contraction just shows that the domestic economy has undergone some unexpected changes.、Uh, it looks like that、uh, the import is way higher than the export,、uh, which in a way shows the resilience of domestic consumer market. But it also shows how weak the domestic investment is. It was not high enough to negate the rise in consumption. Wow. Okay.、Um, but we have been seeing、uh, constant U.S. expansions in the past few months, at least, especially in the fourth quarter last year. It was、um, around 6.9. I mean, what? How do you look at that? And what might be the stimulations of it? Uh, the U.S. economy, even with the contraction right now, is still、uh, overheated.、Uh, the main reason for that was the generous federal subsidies after COVID.、Uh, many families still had very high savings rate, and、mm-hmm. they were continuously spending、uh, this fiscal money.、Um, but、uh, when we look at、uh, how the other parts of the economy is doing, it was not as uh, uh, promising. Um, because people are expecting higher interest rates, and that means investment will slow down.、Mm. 
Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I mean, people are still, you know, spending. Uh, uh, the spending, it looks like uh, it is strong at the moment. The March consumer price index surged 8.5% from a year earlier. Uh, how do you think uh, this is going to affect the life, you know, of average Americans and how will they uh, try to deal with it? Uh, for average American family, uh, they are facing great challenges right now due to the fast rise in food inflation. Uh, for some of the vulnerable families, um, it's not just the food, it's also the rent. And mm-hmm. we know the U.S. economy is mainly driven by consumption, uh, where 70% of the total GDP is from consumption. Um, but uh, the highest propensity to consume is from normally is from those low-income families. Now, with such high inflation, it just means in the coming months, probably uh, the increase in consumption will not be as fast. And to curb the inflation, actually, the government needs to produce a recession to bring the prices level down. What do you mean by produce a recession? Can you elaborate more on that? Uh, now the market expects the Federal Reserve to increase the interest rate between uh, four to six times. Uh, and some aggressive uh, institutions even predict 10 times uh, in the next 15 months. Mm-hmm. And that means uh, when the interest rate is high, it will bring down consumer borrowing and the corporate borrowing. Mm-hmm. And that will essentially dragging, drag the economy into this prolonged recession. Uh, I don't know if the Federal Reserve actually wants to go through with it, um, mm-hmm. but from what we hear uh, from uh, those uh, Federal Reserve officials, it sounds quite likely. Oh, okay. So I think you pretty much already answered the question that I want to ask, which is uh, how do you think the GDP, this GDP report is likely to influence the Fed's decision later this year? Uh, I mean, moving on, <laughs> I mean, the U.S. economy has been uh, reporting supply chain issues since the very beginning of the pandemic. Now, uh, coupled with the Ukraine crisis, which is uh, still going I mean, uh, which industries do you think uh, will see more experience, will experience more difficulties or challenges in this area? Uh, well, the U.S. supply chain had always been in a difficult position because the labor cost was already high before COVID, and after COVID, the highest rise uh, in any macro indicators was actually wage. Uh, we have seen that the wage was increasing by more than five percent in the past two years. And this trend has been accelerating with a shortage of labor in the market. And that means for manufacturing sector as a whole, uh, it will be harder for the U.S. to introduce on uh, the lower end of manufacturing, uh, especially towards the, um, uh, towards the traditional industries. Um, some, uh, for most of the industrial intermediate inputs, uh, the U.S. is trying to get back uh, some of the production of electronics, for example, it mm-hmm. just seems highly unlikely at this point. The the, the supply chain is quite uh, closely related to, uh, as well as, you know, the, the labor market. I mean, um, jobless claims in the U.S. have been near historic lows and fell last week to 180,000 as employers try to cling to employees amid a shortage of, uh, of, of the available. I mean, how do you look at the prospect of the U.S. labor market at this moment? Do people, you know, who have already quit during the, let's say, the great resignation, as people name it, um, trying to come back to work? 
Well, the U.S. market has been pretty tight, uh, and the wage increase has been very high. Uh, it's good for the workers, especially low-wage workers, but it's not sustainable. Uh, not for an economy that is already running on such high inflation. Uh, in a way, it is good for its immigration policies uh, because there is a shortage of labor, and obviously immigrants are usually cheaper um, than local workers. So that's why we see this greater relaxation of working visa, like H-1B issuance this year. Mm -hmm. um, that would bring more vitality to the economy. Um, but in the months to come, I somehow worry that the power of union uh, will also increase uh, unproportionately uh, compared to other institutions. Uh, the union power has already been pretty high, but uh, President Biden is very keen on bringing more power to this uh, um, to this institution, and that means uh, the wage will become more rigid in the U.S. Uh, and we know that once the price is too high, uh, higher than equilibrium, uh, there will be unemployment happening at some point. Well, is it fair to say that uh, you know this great resignation that people have been talking about already over? The period is uh, over. I'm not sure if it's over because judging from the macro indicators, it is not nearly there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, post-2008 financial crisis, there was a long period of time that everybody was looking for work. Uh, universities were offering those free training or very cheap training programs to unemployed workers. And now we don't see anything like that. There's no training programs. Uh, the company would just basically take on anyone who's interested in looking for a job. Um, the peak of the labor market is simply uh, not there yet. Many people still have the savings from the stimulus package, and they are now just shopping around, trying to figure out uh, maybe a new career path, maybe just taking a break. As you mentioned uh, a few times, the U.S. Uh, government has tried to release uh, several times of uh, stimulus package, uh, especially during the pandemic. I mean, is this uh, still a tool available or possible for them now? For uh, more consumer uh, mm. targeting stimulus package, I think it's highly unlikely at this point um, mm. because uh, politically it's no longer popular. Uh, for the Biden administration, now the focus has shifted to infrastructure building. Mm. Uh, the bill that has been passed was a lot smaller than Biden's original uh, original plan. Mm. Uh, but still, once that infrastructure spending starts, it will bring a lot more opportunities to the economy than the direct cash transfer to consumers. Um, because those bills would improve uh, the transportation uh, system in the U.S. and bring more of the digital infrastructure. And that will lay the foundation for the midterm growth rather than just the short-term uh, stimulus from the consumption increase. I think uh, just recently the U.S. top medical advisor, Anthony Fauci, announced that the country is out of the pandemic phase. I mean, how do you see this message being received by businesses and consumers in America? I mean, are people convinced at all? Uh, it's quite different from state to state and different between different income groups. Uh, for most of the low-income groups, I don't think uh, the pandemic is nearly as over. 
because they are still vulnerable uh, in terms of the medical care, getting medical care, and they cannot afford uh, to lose their productivity at work. Um, but for a majority of the economy, since the U.S. is an economy running on the services sector and consumption, uh, once people are more relaxed, that means there will be more traveling, more spending. So it is a good push for um, good push for the growth, mm-hmm. um, and the market confidence is quite high. Uh, but it doesn't. It, it's not necessarily the case that people don't worry about uh, the pandemic. Um, I think at some point uh, there has to be a balance between uh, whether wearing a mask to protect yourself from getting sick uh, versus uh, to maintain a normalcy in the economy. Well, one more question because、um, I mean the biggest issue I mean for the world today is the Ukraine crisis.、Uh, how do you see the economic fallout from the war, you know, impacting the U.S. economy, especially、um, because emerging markets and developing countries are are experiencing, you know, a high a price hike in either energy or food. Actually, the U.S. economy isn't hit as hard as、mm-hmm. uh, from the Ukraine war as the other the rest of the world. Um, because the U.S. itself is a large energy producer, especially in oil, and it doesn't really depend on natural gas from、uh, Russia. Not like、uh, the European countries, which are dependent on Russia for their gas. And the U.S. inflation is mostly a monetary phenomenon that was basically generated by the Federal Reserve on limited supply of money. So I don't think the current The current inflation can really be blamed that much、uh, on the Ukraine war. That's one reason why the Federal Reserve now is under a lot of criticism for letting the inflation go out of control. That was Wang Jian, chief economist of Hansen Bank China, speaking with Liu Quan. Let's have a short break. This is Real Today. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Road Today with me, Ge Anna. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is in Japan for a two-day visit, his first trip to Asia since taking office last December. He held a summit meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. In a joint news conference, Scholz said that his country wants to strengthen ties with countries in the Indo-Pacific region that shares the same values and work together to end the Ukraine crisis. So for more on this and beyond, I talked with Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Dr. Rong, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is in Japan for a two-day visit. What do you make of the timing of the visit? What are the priorities on his agenda? I think the timing of the visit is really interesting. I think on the one hand, we have noticed that、uh, despite the、uh, so-called Unprecedented shift uh, by uh, Germany in terms of this crisis, the Ukraine crisis,、uh, in the area of、uh, military spendings,、um, raising the, the military budget, and also providing、uh, so participating the sanctions against Russia, and also providing finally, I think, heavy including heavy、uh, military weaponries and others. The public, I think.、Uh, Including the partner、uh, sort of、uh, 
parties in the uh, the coalition of uh, Chancellor Schultz sort of unhappy or unsatisfied by the idea on uh, uh, the chancellor. So I think he's under some pressure to show, to demonstrate that he's really, I think, resolute. He's really want to respond in a way that has been expected. And the second, I think, uh, factor related to the visit is, of course, I, uh, Germany and uh, Japan have traditionally been very close, uh, close uh, economically, and certainly I think they are also uh, sort of uh, uh, members of the G7, which brings to my third point. I think uh, this is uh, Germany this year's uh, chair, so it would be good. It makes sense for the new chancellor to visit Japan at that critical moment to share their notes to make sure that this year's chair, which is Germany, and next year's uh, chair, Japan, will be uh, on the same page on the major uh, regional and global issues. So I think uh, this is possibly uh, the reasons why this visit took place, even though it is called its uh, first visit, to be sure, uh, to Asia, uh, but it's a working visit. So I think very much heavily related to the recent development in the region, beyond, and also, I think, related to the two countries' sort of responses towards the Ukraine crisis. Mm-hmm. Chancellor Shaw said it's no coincidence that his first trip as a chancellor to the region has led to Tokyo, and his first trip is a clear political signal that Germany and the EU will continue and intensify their engagement in the Indo-Pacific region. So from both political and economic perspectives, what are the main objectives for Germany and the EU in this region? That's true. I think uh, Germany and the EU in, in general uh, would have to sort of pay attention uh, to the what has happened. I mean, this region, Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific, whatever you call. After all, I think it's been regarded as the gravity of the, this world. You have seen the developments in the past decades. But more importantly, we have the second, third, the largest economy. We have, we have, I think, over the past decades, uh, seen. I think economically, uh, this region has doing great. So Germany definitely, and the EU as always, have to pay attention to that. As to I think uh, to continue their engagement uh, to the region. The question is, of course, as uh, Chancellor Schultz has said, they want to, if they want to send a kind of a political signal by this visit, this would be an interesting uh, remarks because. Traditionally, I, I think Germany has been very much sort of active economically, and they are not so much being engaged sort of political or, or, or even on other issues. So visit itself, as we have seen, that seems that they would like to show that Germany, is now, in addition to economic engagement with the region, they also wanted to show an interest, development interest in the uh, uh, in the region in terms of the regional issues. That is going to be, I think, uh, I would say that if it is the purpose of political, that would be counterproductive to some some extent because, after all, this region is, uh, uh, they, have, they have their own sort of platform, they have their own way of engagement, 
I think the uh, external factors, particularly I think uh, like uh, Germany, which is very strong traditionally uh, economically, uh, if they want to get engaged, the region get involved in the political issues, I'm not sure uh, how much and what kind of difference they can be doing. Economically, as I said, that uh, Germany has been very much, its role has been highly recognized, and its relationship with China certainly, I think, uh, has been great to some extent economically, and I think uh, as far as China is concerned, there are over 2,000 uh, uh, Chinese companies investing in Germany, and Germany, over I think, over 7,000 uh, companies, and they benefited so much from from Chinese market, and I think that they will be continue to do so. This is a huge market for that. Speaking of their major topic on the agenda, the Ukraine crisis, Kashinda said he and Shaw agreed that as a member of the G7, they share a responsibility to work together to end the Ukraine crisis and restore peace, stability, and international order as quickly as possible. How do you think Japan and Germany will manage to achieve this goal? This is what I think uh, for the observers feel interesting. It is true, I think, as I said, that Germany is the chair of, of G7 uh, this year and uh, Japan is the next year's chair. The question is that, I think, despite the uh, sort of intention or the aspiration uh, by the two chairs, the current chair and the future chairs, to make G7 more sort of uh, prominent or outstanding in a way to address the regional issues. I think the question is that the G7 itself is not as it is, and it's just not just a kind of a group of uh, so-called developed countries, industrialized countries, even, even the influence. I think the, the impact of that group is diminishing, and uh, I don't think they will be able to call the shot uh, even though I think uh, in the wake of the uh, Ukraine crisis among the seven countries that they are being now seeing, we're seeing more so-called solidarity and the unity. They are not going to decide or determine the future. Rather, it is only, I think, uh, an attempt, but I don't see the attempt would be able to do in terms of this big, lofty sort of uh, uh, goals of uh, so-called responsibilities and others. So I can understand the efforts, I can understand the, uh, I think, uh, aspiration, but I don't see the G7 in general and these two countries in particular would be able to make such a huge difference. Now let's talk about Japan's role in the region. According to some experts, with a growing willingness to active participation in NATO and other U.S.-led initiatives, Japan is increasingly adhering to Washington's preferences and attempting to build coalitions against Beijing with other countries in the region. Do you agree with such assertion? Well, Japan has always been, I think, as far as I can see, kind of in an awkward a situation where the region as a whole and in general is undergoing dramatic, unprecedented changes and transformation. I think as third largest economy, an economy that has been a very important role in regional affairs in East Asia. But the very fact that it has not been able to assert itself or to define itself in a way that uh, being a 
ally or a junior partner of the United States undermines, to some extent, uh, of that role Japan one, uh, has, has been aspiring for. Um, moreover, I think uh, Japan, because of its past history, particularly in the wartime history, the atrocities uh, committed by the imperial Japanese armies in the World War II, the, the role uh, that Japan wanted to play as a so-called normal country would always or naturally raise concerns or suspicion of uh, its Asian neighbors, particularly, I think, uh, when some of the Japanese politicians, the right-wingers, they always want to whitewash or even deny the, that part of the history. So Japan is in a, in a sort of situation where, on the one hand, I think it wanted 70 years and more have passed since the end of World War II, and it would like, and economically, Japan is doing great. I mean, politically, and Japan always has a problem. And we have seen that from time to time, when there had a, I mean, development, regional development like that, there was always kind of debate of Japan and Japan, how, what kind of role Japan is going to do. I think for me, the best way for out for Japan is to exercise more sort of strategic autonomy by making its own policies based on the its judgment rather than following blindly the United States. And the least thing I think Japan should do, of course, is, uh, is about following uh, United States policy on China. Japan should develop and can develop its own independent policy of China. I think it's the key for Japan to play a kind of role as it's been aspiring for. Speaking of China, although facing some difference... Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, The World Today, and um, we're going to be closing out our program uh, for today. We want to remind our listeners that you can have access to this program by logging on to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to uh, close out uh, with the music of Booker Little uh, from the album entitled Out Front. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit CarShield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at CarShield.com audio. That's CarShield.com audio.